Hello, every loving one of you. This is Digging Through with Jesse Alvarez. Today we are interviewing one of my favorite poets, Roberto Carlos Garcia, about his book, Melancolia, which is um, a collection of poetry. And it's a fabulous collection. I completely recommend it. You can find out more about the book and about Roberto at um, diggingthroughthefat.com and also at our Facebook where I'm going to be posting um, things that are mentioned during this interview uh, as well as links to Roberto's links to Roberto's website and to his book. So look for those at Facebook. You can find us at Digging Press. You can find us also on Instagram at Digging Press. And um, of course, you can also find us on our website as well as on SoundCloud. We're on iTunes and we're on Stitcher. So that's right, biatches. You can get us in all your devices. And now on to the show. Roberto Carlos Garcia or Roberto Carlos Garcia? Which which do you prefer? Oh, listen, just Roberto's <laughs> fine. They went, they overdosed with that name. When, <laughs> because there's a Brazilian singer. Yeah. His name is Roberto Carlos. And ah. so that was the baby making music. I see, I see. And uh, my father's name was Carlos Alberto. So my mom was like Roberto Carlos. And there it is. There mm-hmm. it is. But I'm sure in school, everybody called you Roberto, right? Yes. It was funny because uh, at school, they called me Roberto. But then on the block, everybody heard, you know, like what my grandmother called me, Carlito. <laughs> and so on the block, I was Carlito. But in school, it was the government name, which is Roberto, right? <laughs> so it was, uh, yeah, it was very interesting. Cool. All right. Well, so I'm, I was actually very impressed by your collection. Um, I have to tell you because I'm I re- I read it last year when it came out, and I think I read it pretty quickly. Um, and then now I had time to really digest it, like really just take my time with it. And um, one thing I wanted you to read because I think it'll set everything up nicely is your author's note because it's such a it's a great note, and it it seems that the collection is is. Um, it's a really important part of the collection. So do you mind reading that? No, not at all. And, and thank you so much um, for those kind words. Melancholia is as easily defined as its elusive cousin, Duende, which is another way of saying it is indefinable. Ancient and medieval physicians believed an excess of one or more of the four primary bodily fluids caused it. I won't bore you with that. You can Google it or visit a library. I'm more interested in what it does to poets, in the way melancholia makes poets long for things that have been, that have yet to pass, and that might have never existed. It makes a poet ache for the beauty and the brevity of life, the fleeting scent and brightness of the rose's many dresses, of spring and summer's shifting heat, and for the childhood that could have been. 
Melancholia is thirst for joy, and believe it or not, pain. It is the heat of lust and the shame of lusting, of not being able to have the thing or person you desire. Melancholia is pure longing and the restless, depressed, and wretched anxiety of longing. And yet, it is significantly more complicated than that. We experience melancholia physically. In her essay collection, Sidewalks, Valeria Luiselli describes the symptoms of melancholia as sadness, crying, stress, headaches, chest pains, insomnia, fatigue, and hallucinations. I'd also add peculiar, unquenchable thirst for wine. These pains must be expressed, poured out, painted, sung, or written. The struggle must be given life. Here is where the evil little cousin Duende knocks incessantly at our door. Melancholia feeds the monster. It feeds Duende. Garcia Lorca wrote, We only know that he, Duende, burns the blood like a poultice of broken glass, that he exhausts, that he rejects all the sweet geometry we have learned, that he smashes styles, that he leans on human pain with no consolation. He also wrote that an old maestro of the guitar told him, The Duende, then, is a power, not a work. It is a struggle, not a thought. I take thought to mean overthinking, the draining of life from the artistic idea, leaving the body and retiring completely into the mind, trying to shake off melancholia, to shake off the pain or experience that feeds the art. What then causes melancholia in us? What brings on our symptoms? Is it the world's lack of social justice? Is it racism? Is it war? Is it heartbreak? The death of loved ones? The fear of death? The accumulation of perceived slights and offenses? Loneliness? Unrequited love? Unfulfilled desire? The fear of God? Of heaven? Or hell? The lack of courage? Poverty? The overwhelming ignorance pervading our world? The endless list of isms and phobias? The apocalypse? The death of a rose? How then to express this? To be a poet that masters melancholia and the mysterious and dangerous outburst of expression that is duende. I don't pretend to know, but I give in to it. I simply enjoy the struggle, the fight to understand. Not thought, but contemplation, like a Sufi seeking truth. This book is a product of what is for me a sacred struggle with melancholia. You know, um, my grandmother uh, used to tell me when I was little that her mother died of melancholia. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, you know, it was so romantic sounding to me. And I really didn't understand what that meant at the time. And, you know, so I think in my head, in my heteronormative head, right, <laughs> I associated melancholia with sort of this feminine side of things, this sort of feminine struggle. And duende, which was also something that I grew up around, um, because again, my grandmother was this big influence and she loved uh, a Spanish singer by the name of Raphael. Oh my God, absolutely, yes. And Raphael, I mean, you have to YouTube this guy. He is the, the super dramatic and passionate singer, you know. Man diva. Man diva. And he's got <laughs> yeah. attitude and. You know, and to me, he was like the epitome of duende, you know, because it was like so much like animalistic stuff going on. And yes. it was always like at a, at a cheesy variety show, which was always, you know, 
fun also. <laughs> Siempre el domingo or some nonsense <laughs> exactly. like that. <laughs> yes. Exactly. Oh my God, yeah. I, I want to say that, um, you know, we have some shared experiences because I remember my grandmother in front of that TV <laughs> every Sunday and that that was her day of melancholia leading up to that show mm. and listening to those singers, you know, belt out that duende and 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 exorcise that melancholia, you know? Yeah. yeah. And we don't we don't romanticize I think and not all poets obviously, you know, and I hate when poets say in today's poetry, you know, I'm really not trying to, to do that. Mm-hmm. But I'll say that there's you know, poets are so educated now. We're so academic in a way that we we kind of it's not a word I know, but academicize almost everything. Yeah. And there's a little bit of that romance that's kind of gone. Um, and for me, you know, there's always that person who will never be satisfied. And I, I don't know. I think that's melancholia. You could die from it. My God, you know, <laughs> to, to, hear, to hear, you know, your grandmother say that. And we experience it and we feel it. But, you know, I don't know. Well, I think we also try to... Um make it clinical you know Mm. this idea that you know you're depressed you need you know maybe you just need some medication to get over it and of course there is that that it could be you know a biological or chemical situation going on in your brain but it's also part of us us, as being humans is is feeling the suffering feeling um, living sort of this mundane life and then yeah. giving yourself yourself the space to just sort of feel and yes. and those feelings may take you to a dark place or may not yes it's a spiritual thing as well um that has to be allowed to to be and to breathe it's definitely spiritual yeah i would agree with that and you're right, not to diminish the biological aspect of this, because, you know, thank God we have science and everything like that. But it's also a, a very spiritual condition, melancholia. Mm-hmm. And in that, you know, in that book, Sidewalks, Valeria, Valeria Luiselli has this really wonderful essay. And, I mean, she goes through this entire history of the term. So if you're curious and you want to hear another another artist's perspective on melancholia and and everything that it, you know, about it, her collection, Sidewalks, is a, a, a wonderful place to just go through it and read it. I know we're, t- you know, these terms are also, they also have a poetic history in that you are um, bringing up Lorca, who yeah. is definitely a big inspiration for you, correct? Uh, yes, yes, and yes, and yes, and no, right? Okay. <laughs> um, there is that, and you said, you alluded to this, right? Melancholia is this kind of feminine, mm-hmm. um, this feminine presence, and even Duende as this, um, you know, this, this feminine kind of idea. Because I think so many times when you're speaking in Spanish, you know, these powerful ideas or these powerful emotions take on that feminine uh, perspective, right? It's not melancholio, right? It's melancholia. That's true, yeah. Um, and duende doesn't even seem gendered if you really, you know, just look at the word. Um, 
but as you know, and you said Rafael, and man, I could I could rattle off Jose Jose, Camilo <laughs> Festo, you know, like yes. all those guys, Emmanuel, that they were all, you know. But then of course there's La Inca, right? Mm-hmm. And there's um, Celia Cruz, and there's that when they, you know, they just opened their mouth and sang. You want to talk about feeling melancholia, uh, particularly in in Celia, Celia Cruz's slow jams, in her homenajes to the different uh the different uh Yoruba and and Santeria deities, right? Right. That melancholia was like real there, you know? Right. And it's that diaspora, right? It's that it's, it's yes. that, that looking at, you know, where being ripped from your home and placed somewhere yes. else, right? It's that sadness. Yes. Or that in longing. the DNA. In the and in the DNA. Yeah. Right? <laughs> like you can't well, shake yeah. And and wonderful science, you know, has shown us that we carry that stuff in our DNA. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and all those generations of those experiences are with us in our DNA. And and you know, man, if I had to rewrite it today, there would be more of that DNA stuff in the book, right? Because yeah, that's definitely a part of it. But then your last part of that author's note brings it back to, I think our lives now and and all the conflicts that we're experiencing the type of conflict that it is yes because Um, it's that that age-old conflict i mean we go through history and it's the same crap just in another generation right uh and while in the past what did we have those big brick cell phones that looked like (laughs) what did they look like my gosh this big box right that we're carrying around uh same problems in that era as we have today with these iPhones. Uh, the technology is advancing faster than we can take it in, but we're still dealing with the same shit. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's also a source of, you know, something there. Maybe frustration. Maybe you know we try to not think about it too much, have hope, and keep moving forward. But it's, I think it it rolls itself up in melancholia also. You know. So, so let's start with the very first poem. Do you okay. mind reading that? Sure. No currency. My love seat in suburbia is distance between me and the world beyond the flat screen. A world I'd love to crush like a dictator, a sad dictator. El generalissimo ridiculissimo. For this world where children burn like the dry bush of California countryside, where firefighters come to save the houses and die. From my love seat in suburbia, as useful as a clown's nose. After all, who can afford water? I'm a father of three, growing fat. Meanwhile, hunger is killing nations. Gluttony is killing nations. I wear floppy feet. But as El Generalissimo, I will complete the carnage, the crazy complicity. Ah, poets, we are one and the same. Rabble what you rabble. Divine a poem, or a poet for that matter. What you imply is fireworks, but the truth is empty wine bottles. Water is made clear by the current. If it be hell, say it is hell. From my love seat in suburbia, I do nothing. But El Generalissimo can instigate metamorphosis. Kids, what should we turn into? What will become of us? 
Pass me the remote control. <laughs> um, you know, the, the most intriguing part of this poem is, of course, El Generalissimo, right? <laughs> because yeah. as a, as a you know, half Dominican, because I'm only half, <laughs> you know, right away, there is this connotation. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? This connotation of Trujillo? Yes. And, yes. And, and Trujillo and... was, you know, Mr. Mega Dictator of Dominican Republic for 40 years, I believe. Well, how did Juno Diaz describe him? The dictating is dictator that ever dictated, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, right. Yeah. You know, and it's it's interesting, you know, people always ask me, okay, you know, where does this book come from? Where do these poems come from? Because there's times when I... I sit down and I'm thinking something and I'm like, damn, that was that poem, you know? And I'm just like, there's, you know, recently, and I have these conversations with my, my daughter and my students because I was very surprised to learn that my students in my English 102 class, they said to me, we don't watch the news anymore. And I said, really? Hmm. Is it too triggering? And they said, yes. It just, you know, many of them said it just makes us too anxious. And it was, I mean, it's a class of 20 students and I would say about 17 and 18 of them said that wow. and so they're just not watching it and one student said we'll watch the memes you know <laughs> that come out afterwards making fun of everyone right and and um and i can remember i remember sitting there you know at many times feeling so helpless in my living room you know um you know being in suburbia for me is, a, is an experience just because of where i come from you know uh, you want to call it the hood, you want to call it the block, whatever it is, you know, it wasn't suburbia. And so, so much of suburbia is like, you're literally, you're experiencing the world from your television. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, which is kind of scary in, its, in itself, but there's a kind of helpless feeling, you know? Um, but we're always presented with these historical figures, you know, dictators, and they have, they have these ridiculous... You know, what was this? La Rafael Leonidas Trujillo, some shit like that, right? <laughs> you, you know, you always, what was Fidel? It's El Comandante or El Supremo Comandante, some crazy shit like that, right? There's always these kind of larger than life figures, and sometimes you just, you know, I, I would say, and I think of Amir Baraka, with, he, has, he does have a poem called The Sad Dictator or something along those lines, and sometimes you just want to take over the world and be like, okay, I'm going to fix this shit. You know what I mean? This is what it's going to look like. And I, I think I'm like, I'm, you know, I'm for lack of a better term, I'm fucking with that in the poem. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to do that and and just express a little bit of the, the hopelessness or the helplessness you feel. Um, but obviously then what the emotion, the imagination can do, you know? Right. Um, because it's a lot, man. It's It's, you know, everywhere you look, you could be like, all right, the world's ending, <laughs> if you really wanted to, right? Um, and so there's some of that in there. One of the things I, you know, just, and it pisses people off when I say this, is I never want to know too much about my poems. What does that mean? Do you mean that you don't want to know what inspired them or what they mean or? Yeah, both. Yes and yes. Okay. I, um, I, I, mean, I mean, that's just where I'm at right now. The other thing about that poem that I, I mean, there is, I mean, you already mentioned this, but there is this irony of um, you, you think that you're the owner of what's happening in your own home, that you can actually somehow control that. 
But the yeah. reality is that that's, you know, <laughs> nonsense, right? It's an illusion. Total. It's a total illusion. And, you know, a friend, a uh, uh, very, very good friend of mine, she's a poet also, I love her dearly, she would, I would say, God, I want to move to New York, and, you know, and, I, and she's like, move to New York, come back, you know, and, and she says, are you kidding me? The suburbs are where, you know, married people go to die. <laughs> And it's like, my God, it's, you know, I don't want to say it's true because thankfully you know, I'm married and we're not dead. But, <laughs> um, you know, there's more to it than just, you know, that statement. There's this idea that you are, it's almost like you're disconnecting from the tree of, of life of everyone else, you know, and you're so concerned with your little patch of grass and your little, you know, cleaning up around your little property and it, you, it's, it becomes a prison almost, you know, it can become one if you're not careful. And so, yeah, that's definitely there. Yeah. But it's also more complicated than that. I mean, oh, so much more. I mean, layers, man, there's so many layers. So I want to, I want to read, um, this small poem you have on page 12 secrets. Uh, nice. I just want to preface this poem by saying that uh, I went into a classroom where a colleague of mine was teaching my book, and <laughs> the student said, okay, this poem, Secrets, I want you to explain to me exactly what this poem is about and where it came from, everything. <laughs> I want I want the dirt. And it was, it was really funny. All right, Secrets. Secrets hide over the skin, like ivy growing on brick. I must touch my way out of them, use my tongue, knees, and elbows, wave as I cross the crumbling bridge, the patchwork stairs, and leap, eyes shut and heart wide in the waterfall and down river into an ocean of feet and dirt. Then beg forgiveness for not telling you. Keeping secrets means crawling on all fours in pain, strutting proud in a pair of new shoes, praying face down in the mud, ass in the air, out of shame. Yeah. How, how old was this student? Like, um, oh, maybe like all of 20. <laughs> I mean, I, maybe. you know, it's, it's the kind of poem that it has this confessional voice and, and it's very naked. And it's also very sensory, the language. And so I think it is the kind of poem that would maybe push a button, you know. Absolutely. <laughs> um, and it yeah. is also very mysterious because you just don't know what that secret or those secrets are. Yeah. And, and, and isn't that, you know, what it's like? I think not just living with, let's say, a secret or secrets, but also suspecting secrets. Mm-hmm. So many of these poems tackle suburban life, suburban living, you know, um, and that's a, definitely a very kind of secretive life in a sense, um, because everyone's putting up this, and we do this in our lives anyway, right? If you think of the psychological criticism, right, the the persona, you know, the mask we present to people, and then, you know, our shadow, what we don't show to the world, right? Mm. Uh, yeah, and so you know, I wanted to, I wanted to put it out there, you know, 
this is how we all kind of deal. This is this is how we all either live with our own secrets or uh, hover around secrets we suspect maybe, you know. I uh, I, I always wonder about um, well, particularly fiction writers and, and po- poets who do write confessional or narrative poetry, um, because I know from my own experience, I I lived in a family that. It was all secrets. It was I, I. No one was ever telling you the truth about anything. I always knew that everybody was bullshitting me, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then there's this, you know. The reality is, we all have these secret thoughts that are inside our heads, and no one will ever know what those thoughts are, unless we, you know, vocalize them or, or put them down on the page in some way. Yes. And some writers are. They just really want to do that. <laughs> you know, they just really <laughs> want to let that out. And, of course, that scares the living daylights out of a lot of people. Um, yes. And and artists do. I mean, maybe it's a creative thing. Maybe that's what makes us a little crazy, that we are doing that. We're actually letting it out and hanging it up there. And everybody can look at it and, you know, mm. we may or may it, not get judged for it. Oh, listen, judgment is going to come, I think, regardless. So you might as well just feel good about what you're creating. You know, um, Alicia Ostriker, wonderful poet and feminist scholar, she was my mentor in in college, and she, you know, she would always say, listen, you can spill your guts, but you got to make it art, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's interesting because growing up, you know, my family was – a little different. My grandmother, may she rest in peace, you know, she was very creative. So we knew everybody's, we knew everybody's dirt, you know, it was just really out there. It was, it was just kind of a wild experience. We knew everything that was going on with everyone, but she always kind of managed to tell it in a way that almost fictionalized it and made it like a, an everyday story, mm-hmm. if that makes any kind of sense, you know? And so that while you knew everything that was going on in everyone else's life it was done in this way where it was presented like hey it's all right you know that could be you you never know right and so um i I think that's where i get a lot of my courage from because um you know she was very dignified but she was also kind of very shameless in that you know this could be this could be you this could be anyone so you know that's their shit big deal you know what i mean I, I don't know. It's tough to explain, in in a sense, but yeah. Well, she was she was sort of like the Mark Twain. <laughs> right. Oh man, that's it. Yes, that's exactly <laughs> it. And that's the end of uh, part one of my interview with Roberto Carlos Garcia. If you'd like to listen to the second part of the interview, you're gonna have to wait two weeks. People, be patient with me. I only have two hands and two ears, and I can only do so much with those appendages. But please do join us in about two weeks. I'll post part two. And um, in the meantime, you can uh, look us up on uh, all our places, uh, diggingthefat.com, Instagram, Facebook, you name it. We're out there. We love to hear from you. Ciao, bellas.